Preface and Chapter One of Europe in the Middle Ages by Irna Lifford Plunkett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Seidel. Europe in the Middle Ages by Irna Lifford Plunkett. Preface. The history of medieval Europe is so vast a subject that the attempt to deal with it in a small compass must entail either severe compression or what may appear at first sight reckless omission. The path of compression has been trodden many times, as in J. H. Robinson's Introduction to the History of Western Europe, or in such series as the periods of european history published by messrs rivington for students or textbooks of european history published by the clarendon press and messrs methuen to the authors of all of these i should like to express my indebtedness both for facts and perspective as to mr h w davis for his admirable summary of the medieval outlook in the home university library series but in spite of so many authorities covering the same ground i venture to claim for the present book a pioneer path of omission it may be reckless but yet i believe justifiable it has been my object not so much to supply students with facts as to make medieval europe live for the many who knowing nothing of her history would like to know a little in the lives of her principal heroes and villains as well as in the tendencies of her classes and in the beliefs and prejudices of her thinkers this task i have found even more difficult than i had expected for limits of space have insisted on the omission of many events and names which i would have wished to include these i have sacrificed to the hope of creating reality and arousing interest and if i have in any way succeeded i should like to pay my thanks first of all to mr henry osborne taylor for his two volumes of the medieval mind that have been my chief inspiration and then to the many authors whose names and books i give elsewhere and whose researches have enabled me to tell my tale ierna l plunkett chapter one the greatness of rome ave roma immortalis hail immortal rome this cry breaking from the lips of a race that carried the imperial eagles from the northern shores of europe to asia and to africa was no mere patriotic catchword it was the expression of a belief that though humanity must die and personal ambitions fade away yet rome herself was eternal and unconquerable and what was wrought in her name would outlast the ages in the modern world it is sometimes necessary to remind people of their citizenship but the roman never forgot the greatness of his inheritance when st paul bound with thongs and condemned to be scourged declared i am roman born the captain of the guard who had only gained his citizenship by paying a large sum of money was afraid of the prisoner on whom he had laid hands without a trial to be a Roman, however, apparently poor and defenseless, was to walk the earth protected by a shield that none might set aside save at great peril. Not to be a Roman, however rich and of high standing, was to pass in Roman eyes as a barbarian, 
a creature of altogether inferior quality and repute be it thine o roman says virgil the greatest of latin poets to govern the nations with thy imperial rule and such indeed was felt by romans to be the destiny of their race stretching on the west through spain and gaul to the atlantic that vast sea of darkness beyond which according to popular belief the earth dropped suddenly into nothingness the outposts of the empire in the east looked across the plains of mesopotamia toward persia and the kingdoms of central asia babylon the wondrous syria and palestine with its turbulent jewish population egypt the kingdom of the pharaohs long ere romulus the city builder slew his brother carthage the queen of the mediterranean commerce all were now roman provinces their lustre dimmed by a glory greater than they had ever known the mediterranean once the battleground of rival powers had become an imperial lake the high road of the grain ships that sailed perpetually from spain and egypt to feed the central market of the world for rome like england today, was quite unable to satisfy her population from home cornfields the fleets that brought the necessaries of life conveyed also shiploads of oriental luxuries silks jewels and perfumes transported from ceylon and india in trading sloops to the shores of the red sea and thence by caravans of camels to the port of alexandria other trade routes than the mediterranean were a vast network of roads that like the threads of a spider's web kept every part of the empire however remote in touch with the centre from which their common fate was spun at intervals of six miles were post-houses provided each with forty or more horses that imperial messengers speeding to or from the capital with important news might dismount and mount again at the different stages hastening on their way with undiminished speed how firm and well made were their roads we know to-day when after the lapse of nearly nineteen centuries of traffic we use and praise them still they hold in their strong foundations one secret of their maker's greatness that the roman brought to his handiwork the thoroughness inspired by a vision not merely of something that should last a few years or even his lifetime but that should endure like the city he believed eternal it was the boast of augustus twenty seven b c through eighty fourteen the first of the roman emperors that he had found his capital built of brick and had left it marble and his tradition as an architect passed to his successors there are few parts of what was once the roman empire that possess no trace to-day of massive aqueduct or forum or public baths or stately colonnades in rome itself the Colosseum, the scene of so many a martyr's death and gladiator's struggle elsewhere as at nimes in southern france a provincial amphitheatre the aqueduct of segovia in spain the baths in england that have made and named a town the walls that mark the outposts of empire all are the witnesses of a genius that dared to plan greatly nor spared expense or labor in carrying out its designs those who have visited the border country between england and scotland know the emperor hadrian's wall twenty feet high by seven feet broad constructed to keep out the fierce picts and scots from this most northern of his possessions those of the enemy that scaled the top 
would find themselves faced by a ditch and further wall bristling with spears while the legions flashed their summons for reinforcements from guardhouse to guardhouse along the seventy miles of this massive barrier all that human labor could do had made the position impregnable a scheme of fortifications was also attempted in central europe along the lines of the rhine and the danube these rivers provided the third of the imperial trade routes and it is well to remember them in this connection, for their importance as highways lasted right through Roman and medieval into modern times. Railways have altered the face of Europe. They have cut through her waste places and turned them into thriving centers of industry. They have looped up her mines and ports and tunneled her mountains. There is hardly a corner of any land where they have not penetrated, and the change they have made is so vast that is often difficult to imagine the world before their invention in roman times in neighborhoods where the sea was remote and road traffic slow and inconvenient there only remained the earliest of all means of transport the rivers the rhine and the danube one flowing northwest the other southeast both neither too swift nor too sluggish for navigation were the natural main high roads of central europe they were also an obvious barrier between the empire and barbarian tribes. To connect the Rhine and the Danube at their sources by a massive wall, to establish forts with strong garrisons at every point where these rivers could easily be forded, such were the precautions by which wise emperors planned to shut in Rome's civilization and to keep out all who would lay violent hands upon it the emperor augustus left a warning to his successors that they should be content with these natural boundaries lest in pushing forward to increase their territory they should in reality weaken their position it is easy to agree with this views centuries afterwards when we know that the defences of the empire pushed ever forward snapped at the finish like an elastic band but the average Roman of imperial days believed his nation equal to any strain. It was a boast of the army that Roman banners never retreat. If then a tribe of barbarians were to succeed in fording the Danube and in surprising some outpost force, the legions sent to punish them would clamor not merely to exact vengeance and return home, but to conquer and add the territory to the empire. In the case of swamps or forest land, the clamor might be checked, but where there was pasturage or good agricultural soil, it would be almost irresistible. Emigrants from crowded Italy would demand leave to form a colony. Traders would hasten in their footsteps, and soon another responsibility of land and lives, perhaps with no natural protection of river, sea, or mountains, would be added to Rome's burden of government. Such was the fertile province of Dacia, north of the Danube, a notable gain in territory, but yet a future source of weakness. At the head of the empire stood the emperor, Caesar Augustus, the commander-in-chief of the army, the supreme authority in the state, the fountain of justice, a god before whose altar every loyal Roman must burn incense and bow the knee in reverence. It was a great change from the old days when Rome was a republic, and her senate or council of leading citizens had been responsible to the rest of the people for their good or bad government 
the historian tacitus looking back from imperial bays with a sigh of regret says that in that happy age man could speak what was in his mind without fear of his neighbors and draws the contrast with his own time when the emperor's spies wormed their way into house and tavern paid to betray those about them to prison or death for some chance word or incautious action yet rome by her conquests had brought on herself the tyranny of the empire it is comparatively easy to rule a small city well where fraud and self-seeking can be quickly detected but when rome began to extend her boundaries and to employ more people in the work of government unscrupulous politicians appeared these built up private fortunes during their term in office they became senators and in the senate ceased to represent the will of the people and began to govern in the interests of a small group of wealthy men members of their families became governors of provinces first in italy and then as conquest continued across the mountains in gaul and spain and beyond the seas in egypt and asia minor except in name senators and governors ceased to be simple citizens and lived as princes with officials and servants ready to carry out their slightest wish perhaps it may seem odd that the roman people once so fond of liberty that they had driven into exile the kings who oppressed them should afterwards let themselves be bullied or neglected by a hundred petty tyrants but in truth the people had changed even more than the class of patricians to whom they found themselves in bondage no longer pure roman or latin but through conquest and intermarriage of every race from the stalwart teuton to the supple oriental or swarthy egyptian few amongst the men and women crowding the streets of rome remembered or reverenced the traditions of her early days rome stood for military glory luxury culture at her best for even-handed justice but no longer for an ideal of liberty if national pride was satisfied and adequate food and amusement provided the roman populace was content to be ruled from above and to hail rival senators as masters according to the extent of their promises and successes a failure to fulfill such promises resulting in a lost campaign or a dearth of corn would throw the military tyrant of the moment from his pedestal but only to set up another in his place it was an easy transition from the rule of a corrupt senate to that of an autocrat better one tyrant than many was the attitude of mind of the average citizen toward octavius caesar when under the title of augustus he gathered to himself the supreme command over army and state and so became the first of the emperors had he been a tactless man and shouted his triumph to the seven hills he would probably have fallen a victim to an assassin's knife but he skilfully disguised his authority and posed as being only the first magistrate of the state under his guiding hand the senate was reformed and its outward dignity rather increased than shorn augustus could issue his own edicts or commands independently of the senate's consent but he more frequently preferred to lay his measures before it and to let them reach the public as a senatorial decree in this he ran no risk for the senators impressive figures in the eyes of the ordinary citizen were really puppets of his creation 
at any minute he could cast them away his fellow magistrates were equally at his mercy for in his hands alone rested the supreme military command the imperium from which the title of imperator or emperor was derived at first he accepted the office only for ten years but at the end of that time resigning it to a submissive senate he received it again amid shouts of popular joy the tyranny of augustus had proved a blessing instead of corps of troops raised here and there in different provinces by governors at war with one another and thus divided in their allegiance there had begun to develop a disciplined army whose legions were enrolled paid and dismissed in the name of the all-powerful caesar and who therefore obeyed his commands rather than those of their immediate captains the same system of centering all authority in one absolute ruler was followed in the civil government governors of provinces once petty rulers became merely servants of the state caesar sent them from rome he appointed the officials under them he paid them their salaries and to him they must give an account of their stewardship if thou let this man go thou art not caesar's friend such was the threat that induced pontius pilate governor of judea in the reign of tiberius to condemn to death a man he knew to be innocent of crime this is but one of many stories that show the dread of the emperor's name in rome's far distant provinces governors military commanders judges tax collectors all the vast army of officials who bore the responsibility of government on their shoulders had an ultimate appeal from their decisions to caesar and were exalted by his smile or trembled at his frown it is not a modern notion of good government this complete power vested in one man but rome nearly two thousand years ago was content that a master should rule her so long as he would guarantee prosperity and peace at home this under the early caesars was at least secured two fleets patrolled the mediterranean but their vigilance was not needed save for an occasional brush with pirates not but storms disturbed her waters the legions on the frontiers whether in syria or egypt or along the rhine and danube kept the barbarians at bay until romans ceased to think of war as a trade to which every man might one day be called it was a profession left to the few the many content to pay the taxes required by the state and to devote themselves to a civilian's life to one would fall the management of a large estate another would stand for election to a government office a third would become a lawyer or a judge others would keep shops or taverns or work as hired laborers while below these again would be the class of slaves whether prisoners of war sold in the marketplace or citizens deprived of their freedom for crime or debt in rome itself was a large population living in uncomfortable lodging houses very like the slum tenements of a modern city some of the inhabitants would be engaged in casual labor some idle but when the empire was at its zenith lavish gifts of corn from the government stood between this otherwise destitute population and starvation it crowded the streets to see caesar pass threw flowers on his chariot and hailed him as emperor and god and in return he bestowed on it food and amusements 
the huge amphitheatres of rome and her provinces were built to satisfy the public desire from pageantry and sport and because life was held cheap and for all his boasted civilization the roman was often a savage at heart he would spend his holidays watching the despised sect of christians thrown to the lions or hired gladiators fall in mortal struggle we about to die salute thee with these words the victims of an emperor's lust of bloodshed bent the knee before the imperial throne and at caesar's nod passed to slay or be slain the emperor's sceptre did not bring mercy but order justice and prosperity above the ordinary standard of the age end of chapter one